Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. We have a special guest star to uh, start off our episode today. Go for it. Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals. That was our daughter, Ramona. She's 10, and uh, she just randomly said that phrase to me the other day. (laughs) And I was like, oh, you listen to everything. She must be listening while you're editing. Like, you, Uh like, listen back to the podcast to edit, right? Yeah, And she probably hears it. Mm -hmm. She's great. Yeah. And it's at the beginning, so I think it's like she just hears it over and over. Welcome to the, yeah. Which is funny because we have a hard time remembering it. But anyways, welcome to episode eight mm-hmm. and happy death day to C.S. Lewis today. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, this, I mean, we're recording this on Sunday. This is going up tomorrow, Monday. Uh, so he died on November 22nd. And our guest today is the one who told me that. So. Okay. Yeah. Happy death happy day. Death day. Is that- <laughs> It feels like there's a different term well, there's for that. from that's from Harry Potter. Oh, okay. Which <laughs> <laughs> we 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 mentioned J.K. Rowling in this episode too. It's all coming together, Crispin. It's mm. all coming together. I'm very excited. We always talk about J.K. Rowling. We do. Okay, so I'm really excited about our interview today. It's with Cat Coffin, who is a delightful follow on Twitter, and just one of those people who you know, is funny, can be irreverent, but also it's just like an actual academic and it's just a good, a good kind of person to engage with and to have these conversations with. And today our episode is all about the problem of Susan. So we're kind of taking a break from doing it book by book, although the books mentioned in in this episode would would be uh, mostly Prince Caspian and then The Last Battle. And there's so much in here I want people to be listening for. I mean, you can hear in this interview, but I like lose my mind when Kat is talking about Joy Davidman and all of the we like she is a communist from Brooklyn who left her husband to go seduce C.S. Lewis across the pond, like literally. And it's also really interesting how Kat is like so films like Shadowlands and all that have been really uh, changed to fit the evangelical narrative of. Lewis's relationship with Joy. We don't get into it too much, but C.S. Lewis does have such a weird history with women. We basically only mentioned that he didn't have any close female friends besides like Dorothy L. Sayers. And then he got married to Joy when he was much older. But he did have this very, very bizarre relationship for the majority of his life with this much older woman. Like to sum it up really quickly, he basically went to war, you know, when he was young, his fellow soldier died and C.S. Lewis had promised like I'll take care of your mom and your sister if anything happens to you so he ends up like sticking to that promise for the next like 30 years or something and in the beginning he's he definitely had like an intimate relationship with this woman who was also Mm. like his mom and remember his mom died when he was a kid so that was messed up and weird 
And it eventually morphed into like he just took care of this really demanding older woman who had some dementia and all this stuff. And so lots to unpack there. But most people in his life were like, I don't understand why he just like dotes on this person who, um, you know, takes up so much of his energy. So anyways, there's that. There's that huh. relationship in I his life. I did not know oh, any it's of It's really that. weird. And like all of his biographers, especially if they come from like a... Christian perspective, just don't know what to do uh, mm. with that huge period of time. But he was actually taking care of this older woman while he was writing Narnia. And like in the biographies, it says like she had so many demands of him that he could only write in like 30 minute increments before this lady needed him to do something else. So he basically worked as her maid and all sorts of things. Anyways. Wow. Woo, but the thing I really wanted to talk to you about was, you know, I mentioned a little bit, like, the problem with Susan is that Susan Pevensey, who is the second of the, you know, four Pevensey children from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, she's the oldest girl in the last battle when everybody goes, basically dies, sorry, spoiler alert, and gets into Aslan's country, Susan's not there. And somebody brings up, and Peter is like, I'm sorry, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. And then everybody's like, yeah, she cares too much about things like lipstick and nylons and parties. And um, and then that's it. And then they all go into heaven and Susan's not there. So like lots of readers throughout the ages have been throughout the ages. <laughs> the decades have been like, what? What? You know, I didn't notice it when I was a kid. But if you identify with Susan at all, I'm sure you did notice like. Wait, she doesn't get into heaven and she's just left alone on the earth? And so that's become, you know, what we call the problem of Susan. And Neil Gaiman wrote a short story about it. Kat's done a lot of work on that. I thought it might bring up attachment stuff for people. But, um, you know, I think you might want to talk about some of the other elements of this story and, and why it's been such a huge deal for people. Yeah, so I I think that, for one, yeah, there's a lot of attachment anxiety that can come up around hell and a lot of hell anxiety. That's a whole topic um, that I tweet about sometimes and write about on Instagram and stuff. So uh won't go into that if you email me if you want to have that conversation at propheticimaginationstation mm-hmm. at gmail.com. But um, in my studies on hell, uh, there's this book called The Evangelical Universalist by Robin Perry. Um and he talks about what do we do with the fact that uh, that people in heaven are happy and rejoicing while their loved ones are suffering in hell, which is exactly what happens in the last battle. Well, I mean, we don't see Susan suffering in hell. Okay, that's but true. But she's left behind on earth to be alone. Right. So coming to this from a, especially from an evangelical lens, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have interpreted this as when it says she is no longer, she doesn't get into heaven. That's what we know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and, uh, so basically like there've been these two different ways of thinking about it, neither of which are very helpful. One is, uh, that God wipes our memories clean of those that we loved and we forget about them. The other is uh, a much more reformed view, which is that we no longer see that person as a wife or brother or sister, but we see them as an evil, vile enemy of the God that we love and we rejoice in their eternal torment. I mean, that's almost what Peter says, because he's like, she's no longer a friend of Narnia. And then they all just forget about her. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really, it brings up, I mean, I think that is just a super, super important question. Uh, as Christians that we need to bring up when we think about 
the afterlife. Yeah. And this obviously brings it up. But what I love about Kat and your interview is actually like, I don't want to say it's more important, but like looking at the the um, gendered implications and uh, Lewis's approach to women, um, which I think and she she interprets it in a different way. And I think it's a really interesting interview. Yeah. So. And the coolest thing is just saying, uh, you know, that it's OK to be sad that Susan doesn't make it into Narnia. I don't know. Just like having permission as a reader and as someone who loves works to be sad and to be encouraged to write your own thing. I mean, Kat wrote a whole play about Susan. I'm just like, that is so cool. Right? Yeah. That's totally. the kind of person I want to be. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So we're excited about this interview. I'm pretty sure you need to tell me some quotes yes. about Wormwood or not. Yes. Dear Wormwood segment. So uh, what we've been doing, just as a recap, is we I'm reading Danielle a couple of quotes from Dear Worm from the Screw Tape Letters, which starts with Dear Wormwood, um, from one demon to another. Um, so keeping in mind that when it talks about the enemy, the enemy is God. Um, and I read Danielle a couple of quotes, and we decide which one is fake because there are so many fake ones out People there. People love them fakes. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one is fake. <gasps> This is going to be good. Okay. Okay. Dear Wormwood, I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he at least, he ought to at least be violently attached to some party within it. All extremes except extreme devotion to the enemy are to be encouraged. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. That sounds real. Here's the second one. Okay. Dear Wormwood. Continue convincing patients that nothing can be trusted except for their own experiences. With the world literally at their fingertips, distract them from the pursuit of truth by overwhelming them with information. It does not matter if the information in front of them is true or false. Paralyzing their initiative to gain understanding will accomplish our means. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. That's fake. You're right. And it's funny because it almost sounds like something. I'm like, no, C.S. Lewis would not be upset about people reading more. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's true. Especially if it's like factual. Right, yeah. So, and I guess the fingertips part. Yeah. Uh, you know. At your fingertips, social right. media. I don't think he's, you know, cared about social media. Right. Good so job. It didn't exist. Thank you. I'm so good at this game. I'm the just, first like, one, so though, good. I was surprised because it talks about like parties, and I was like, that just sounds so like current. But then I realized that when he talks about parties, he's talking about like people that say mass or people that like these. Yeah. Well, we don't want to get all into that because he's actually really mean about Catholics and really hurt Tolkien's feelings about it. Anyways. So much. My mm-hmm. brain is just like full of this. Speaking of which, we for our Patreon only episode this month, uh, we are going to be recapping uh, Adventures in Odyssey Christmas episode that Christmas really excited about. And then next month, we are currently putting together a sort of like Zoom happy hour where we can all get on and just, you know, drink our sparkling water or whatever and have a few of our guests from this season on as well. And we can just nerd out about Narnia stuff for a while, face-to-face. So if you're one of our Patreons, be on the lookout for more info about that. You can always join us um, at patreon.com slash dlmayfield. So let's uh, get to this interview, Chrisman. Okay, I'm so excited today to chat with Kat Coffin. She is somebody who comes highly recommended 
on her scholarship with C.S. Lewis. And I actually have seen a few of her fabulous Twitter threads on the subject. And the reason Kat is such a perfect person to interview is because I think she's in the same vein as our podcast where she is okay with critiquing the things we love. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to her. She's uh, a little bit famous for her thoughts on Susan, the pregnancy <laughs> that nobody really likes to talk about. We're going to get into all that. But Kat, could you please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi, um, my name is Kat Coffin. It's great to be here. I am study. I have been studying C.S. Lewis and gender theory for about... 10 years, because I started when I was around 19, and have uh, presented on her for about six years in various aspects. I am currently working on a book about uh, the female characters in C.S. Lewis's literature, and I wrote a play about Susan Pevensey uh, two years ago, and I actually got permission from the C.S. Lewis estate to have it performed, which is a very rare thing. They are usually pretty, pretty strict about who gets to play in their playground. Oh my gosh. What's the play about? So it's actually about Susan. Wow. Who could have guessed that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a one woman play. It is um, taking elements of another one of C.S. Lewis's nonfiction works called A Grief Observed, which he wrote after his wife died. And I use elements of A Grief Observed and basically kind of reimagine how Susan might have felt after losing her family at the end of the events of the last battle and kind of process her grief, her anger, her um, loss of faith, her possible redemption of faith is very ambiguous, but that is what the place wow. is. <laughs> okay. This is so exciting. You're an actual Susan scholar. And, um, you know, you, you've had a few Twitter threads that went viral. I think there was one, was it last year? Or was it two years ago? I think it was two years ago. Okay. Is, yeah. That sounds yeah right. and, and we'll link, we'll link to that in our show notes, but I, Grew up with the Narnia books. I watched the BBC adaptations and then I watched most of the newer movies that came out. I'm like, they just came out, but actually the first one was like 15 years ago, which makes yeah. me feel really old. <laughs> and for me, Susan has always been a complete non-entity. Like I didn't think about her. I never, yeah, she just wasn't interesting to me. And then after seeing some of your tweets, you know, I, I did a little bit of research onto there is a lot of drama around Susan, her role in the books, what it says about C.S. Lewis, possibly being misogynist. And, you know, there's a lot of famous authors who have grappled with what they call the problem of Susan, right? There's all these J.K. Rowling quotes about how it totally turned her off C.S. Lewis. And then I think the most famous one would be Neil Gaiman. I don't know if that's how you say his name. I've actually never read his books, but of course I know who he is. And he actually wrote a short story called The Problem of Susan, which I'm sure you're really familiar with. Do you want to just yep. sum that up really quick for our <laughs> for our listeners? Um, the Problem of Susan is uh, also kind of deals with the same themes is what it would be like to lose your family in a train accident. Um, Gaiman, like a lot of other people, assume that Lewis did not like sexuality, particularly female sexuality and interprets the fate of Susan as a punishment for her experiencing feminine sexuality. And so he, he writes about that. It's a very short, dark, disturbing 
little short story. I've read it multiple times because I have to. Yeah. But it's also it's that's kind of what Gaiman does. I really used to hate it uh, when I first started getting into this, but now I, I'm a little bit more understanding because it's okay to be upset about Susan. Like, yeah. she's my favorite character. And it's okay to be upset that she's not in the last battle. It's okay to be upset about what happens to her. And so this was sort of Gaiman's way of dealing with it. And I'm all for dealing with complicated emotions through art. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it. You wrote a whole play. So so for people who either never read the books or having a hard time remembering, what is the problem of Susan? You're mentioning she's not in the last battle. Something happens to her family. Can you just really briefly kind of sum up, you know, what people like J.K. Rowling what people are so upset about when it comes to Susan in these books. Yeah. So in the last battle, um, at the very end of the series, all of the, almost all of the characters show up and we see Lucy, we see Edmund, we see Peter, we see all of them from the original characters and Tyrion, who is the, one of the main protagonists of last battle says, uh, aren't we missing a Pevensey? Where is lady Susan? And Peter says, Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. And that, and another character says she was always too set on being grown up. Whenever we tried to talk to her about Narnia, she would laugh and say, oh, those silly games you used to play. Isn't that funny? And she was always more interested in lipstick and nylons and party invitations. And those, uh, those nouns are the thing that really trip people up. The lipstick, the nylons, and the party invitations. And they're very gendered terms, obviously. So that leads into a lot of, shall we say, negative interpretations of what happened to Susan. And so she's not in the last battle. We don't really see her. That's the last, that's the last we hear of her. And uh, a lot of people actually wrote to C.S. Lewis when the book first came out and asked him, hey, what happened to Susan? And he said, Basically, that she was left alone in this world and she had become a very silly young woman, but there's plenty of time for her to mend. And in another letter, he encouraged people to write their own Narnian stories. So that's one of the reasons I wrote my play. Yeah. (laughs) So what happens in the last battle is they all go on to Aslan's country, right? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. And so basically, it's heaven and Susan is not there to enter into heaven. Um, And what the last battle ends up saying is that they were all in a train wreck. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And so they all died and they go to Aslan's country while Susan is left on earth. And so, I mean, I do think I remember being a little troubled by that as a kid, but there's so much going on in the last battle. It didn't stick out to me. So going back and reading other people's reactions has been really interesting for me. And I think it's important to pay attention to why so many people are upset about that because I wish my husband was here for this interview. He's an attachment therapist, you know, and I would think it would really bring up some fears for people to think, am I going to be left out of Narnia or someplace like that because of my, I like lipstick, you know, like, does that mean I'm a silly young woman? Now you have really studied the wider arc of Susan. You've already said she's your favorite character. I was wondering if you could kind of take us through how she's characterized in the books. And when I asked you, you know, what book is most important to the story of Susan, you actually said Prince Caspian, which really surprised me. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of our first introductions of Susan is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And literally her first line is, 
Edmund is whining about something or other. And she says, isn't it time for you to be in bed? And at this point, she's like 10 years old and she's, you know, being very bossy. And Edmund looks at her and says, go to bed yourself. Stop trying to act like your mother. You know, you're not my real mom. And that's something Susan does consistently throughout the books that she is present in, is she sort of puts on this air of practicality and responsibility and superiority, basically, over her younger siblings. And it gets her into trouble. And it makes sense for her, you know, to be the second oldest child during wartime. And, you know, you have to watch out for your siblings and everything. But it also, it's also a fatal flaw for her. It's uh, essentially hubris a little bit. It comes from a place of pride. And in Prince Caspian, we see that come to a crux. Uh, Especially, there's a scene where Lucy, who is the youngest, basically wakes up all of her siblings and says, I've seen Aslan and he wants us to follow him. And none of her siblings see. And none of them really want to go off in the middle of the night traipsing after their youngest sister who claims to see Aslan, but they do anyway. But Susan is against it the entire time. She refuses. She gets really snippy. She repeatedly says, well, Lucy's the youngest. Why on earth are we following her? She's just had a dream. You know, it's, it's, she goes full bossy adult older sister mode. And it's frustrating for Lucy, who kind of dealt with this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, with all of her siblings not believing her, that there is a magical land through the wardrobe, and they all turned out to be wrong. And yet here is Susan doing it again, not believing her, when she has no reason not to trust her sister. You know, it all comes from a sort of pride. And this is foreshadowing her fate and what happens to her, because she is so focused on that superiority, so focused on you know, refusing to humble herself, essentially, that she doesn't see Aslan until the very, very last minute. And then when she does, she has to apologize to Lucy and feel really miserable about how she treated her younger sister. Wow. Okay. I'm not remembering any of this. (laughs) (laughs) So what, what is it, what is it like when Susan does see Aslan at the end of Prince Caspian. What's that interaction like? It's really actually beautiful. And this is one of the reasons why I am not entirely, I don't want to say I'm not bothered by her not being in the last battle, but I have more faith in it and how it turns out. Like literally that it's, 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 so literally all he says to her is that you have listened to fears child Hmm. and it's really actually a beautiful scene she she's and it's immediate forgiveness essentially it's immediately like welcomes her back in again they don't even really have a huge conversation about it he just yeah forgives her and it just it's just all that's all he really wants susan you have listened to fears, child. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. Are you brave again? And she goes, a little Aslan. Wow. And- so, so Susan's actually kind of honest. And I think you're exactly right. It's just, how is this a fatal sin to be overly grown up because you're in a war and you have to take care of your kids because your entire city is being bombed and you've been sent to the country. Like you're right. Susan's responses could almost be read as trauma responses, right? She's acting oh, sure. like a little grown up because she has to. Um, so why would that keep her out of, of Narnia and out 
of Aslan. Instead, Aslan's like, I see how scared you are, mm-hmm. uh, which is causing you to act like this. And so I think that really helps. I've been on a journey of really diving into C.S. Lewis and his worldview, which was sort of obsessed with this idea of en- enchantment and magic yes. and pushing back against modernism. And so, you know, maybe we see a little bit of that in Susan's story, how she's just really into um, the modern world. I don't know. Can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think C.S. Lewis worried a lot about what was happening to children and almost a disenchantment of children as they got older. He was a very old fashioned sort of person. And there were a lot of books he just plain didn't like. There was, there's literally a conversation he had with J.R.R. Tolkien. He was just like, well, if we're not reading the books we like to read, then we might as well have, we might as well have to write them. Yeah. And so I'm, I completely blanked. What was the question again? Oh, just if, if maybe Susan embodies a little bit of kids who are more into the modern world and are shying away from enchantment, which is something it seems like he was worried about. Yeah, actually. And I would actually argue that Susan is the closest character in terms of personality to Lewis when he was younger himself. I think he put a lot of his own spiritual struggles and his own issues with pride and being superior and arrogant towards other people in his circle, I think he put a lot of that in Susan. Because if you read a lot of his early letters when he was a kid, he was not that dissimilar from Susan. He was very superior. Like, uh, he was kind of a little shit, if I'm to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? Even as you're talking, I'm like, this is so fascinating. Because when I am thinking of, I read those books a lot when I was a kid. And I really remember identifying with Edmund and Eustace because they had these really intense uh, like conversion experiences. And as a kid, you're like, yes, I can be a crappy little person sometimes. So I feel a little bit similar to both mm-hmm. of those characters, but I never thought that was Susan. I-, I think even just listening to you talk a little bit, I see that same arc in her story, but it's really muted. And it's something that as readers, maybe not everybody picked up on, but it's still there. And and you've talked a little bit about, you, you know, I think it's a knee-jerk reaction to say that C.S. Lewis was completely sexist. I don't quite understand all the claims. And I also think it's just kind of weird. Like when he was writing these books, right, he didn't even really know any kids. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a few weird things, right, about his life. And I don't think it's a huge stretch to say he maybe didn't understand women that great it's a it's a tricky thing like something I always want to stress when I you know raise my sword and shield and run out to battle to defend Susan I don't want to pretend that Lewis was completely untroubled by gender there are a lot of his short stories and other works of fiction where women are not portrayed great I wouldn't go as far as to say misogynistically, except in the case of a couple of short stories that were just really bad. I would say they were more examples of benevolent sexism Mm -hmm. and, as you said, kind of dealt with a lack of experience in talking to women. And that changed a lot because of he had, he became friends with Dorothy L. Sayers, who was kind of an ardent feminist of her time. 
and his own wife, Joy Davidman, who is one of my favorite people ever, is was an American communist from Brooklyn and was just the coolest person in the world. She was ballsy. She was rude. She was... And I would argue she was also a very feminist in her time and she could match with him intellectually. Like she had the same eidetic memory as he did. She could argue him back to death. They had an ongoing, uh, an ongoing argument about birth control, which I wish the letters were still in existence. But Lewis had an annoying habit of burning his correspondence, but she mentioned that she had a long running argument about birth control with him. And this is a woman from the 1950s and like so cool. And you notice that after he started talking to his wife, and it started corresponding with her getting to know her a little bit, his characterization of women shifted a little bit more and they became a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more evolved. Not perfect by any means. But yeah. So that's what I was going to say is, so, so his, his relationship with his wife was after he wrote the Narnia books. Is that correct? Yes. And then some what about, them. some what of them about, happened like during. Okay. And what about Dorothy Sayers? When was she in his life while he was writing Narnia or no? I don't actually know the time zone of Dorothy L. Sayers. <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm just curious, like, what kind of women was he in relationship with? Because, like, when he was a younger man and even a younger academic, right, he's in these academic spaces where it's all men. I think in one of his first little, like, <laughs> author profiles, he said his favorite sound in the world was the sound of adult men laughing. Like, he's just yeah. he's just absolutely in the boys club. Narnia comes out of this period in his life where he's really struggling in a few ways. And it's out of his desire for enchantment that he writes these, but he doesn't have a lot of relationship with women. And now you've written about his last novel and how it portrays women. And you do see some growth there, right? And because all the main characters in that book are women, am I correct? And the, and the book is Till we Mostly, have faces. Yeah. yeah. Till we have faces. The majority are female characters and he writes them really well. Till we have faces is cool because he, he wrote that with a ton of editorial collaboration with his wife and you can oh. see her in, yeah, you can see her influence all over. He actually, I learned this at a conference last year. He actually wanted her listed as a co-writer, but because she was a bit of a failed poet, she said, no, it'll take away the book sales. So she she told him not to, which oh bums. my gosh. I know it bums me out so much. Like, no, girl. Well, let's get, reissue it and get her name on there. I agree. Um, yeah. So, uh, for those who don't know, C.S. Lewis did have a late in life marriage uh, mm-hmm. to Joy, which he writes about in A Grief Observed. And it was a, it was kind of a short marriage, right? And it was, yes. she, she ended up dying of cancer and is really um, heartbreaking. But I think. This is important to talk about as someone who grew up in evangelicalism, we really do have some binary thinking when it comes to engaging in pop culture, things we like, either we love it and it's safe. You know, now that's a huge adjective, right? If you turn on Christian radio, the first thing it says, it's safe for the whole family. Um, So we're really into what's safe, what we can share with our kids and we just accept it wholeheartedly or else we disregard something completely uh, there's not a whole lot of nuanced thinking. And and I think that's still playing out a little bit today. I mean, we have JK Rowling going off on these Twitter rants um, <laughs> about the trans community. And, 
you know, seeing how a lot of people have responded to that, you know, I'm on TikTok a little bit and there's all these young adults being like, isn't it funny that Daniel Radcliffe wrote Harry Potter? You know, like they're, <laughs> they're dealing with their grief with the yeah. flaws in the author by saying nobody wrote Harry Potter. It's just this wonderful book that nobody wrote or, you know, Daniel Radcliffe wrote it. So, so there's ways we can do that. A lot of people are just like, I'm never going to read it again, or they're going to burn their books or so, so we, we have to engage with the reality that authors are flawed people. I'm kind of glad C.S. Lewis didn't have Twitter. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> <laughs> who knows what else would have unearthed, but he's not a perfect person. And we're not no even way. touching on um, his racism or his absolute entrenchment in the colonial mindset. Um, but what we are here to discuss, there is obviously some sexism in how he writes about women. But you're saying that doesn't mean we need to discredit it. And yeah. in fact, I think even maybe your attention and care towards Susan is one way you've kind of chosen to enter into that discussion with these books. I don't know. Would you say that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I knew I wanted to study gender theory and I knew I wanted to study C.S. Lewis. And those two weren't super popular things to study you either when you get into c.s lewis scholarship you either come across people that like absolutely hate c.s lewis and find him disgusting and will just rip him apart or you will find people that will kind of excuse away his uh let's say more problematic portrayals of female characters and i really wanted to find a balance in the midway and I, I certainly, I totally understand, you know, throwing away Harry Potter books or just saying I'm never going to read them again. I get that. Also, though, at an academic, though, as an academic, I had to kind of take the stance that if I wanted to study this and still enjoy this and love this, I had to strike this balance of accepting a flawed, sinful person who was never going to reach my standards of what I wanted him to be. And while also still loving and appreciating his work. One of my favorite things I say is C.S. Lewis is not as evangelical as evangelicals want him to be, but he's not as progressive as I want him to be. Yeah. I think that's a great way of looking at it. I I, I do struggle with this myself. And I, I also wonder if there's even um, seasons and times where it's okay to put away people and put away their works and then... I think I am in a space now where I'm like, I'm interested in coming back with a wider perspective. I also am like, if, if people want to say, I'm never going to read the Chronicles of Narnia again, I'm like, that makes sense <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, but if you're going to read it and if, if you're going to find some pleasure in it, which again, this is going back to C.S. Lewis's own approach to reading. Like, do you find pleasure in it? If you do, then it's worth interrogating. Where is that coming from? What am I liking? And it's okay to also critique parts of it too. Um, and that makes it maybe a more richer experience because you don't have to shove certain things under the table. I'm going to have to deal with this when we talk about the book, The Horse and His Boy, because that was my favorite book growing up. And I have been too <laughs> scared to go back and read it because um, of the Orientalism that's in there, of the just blatant racism. So uh, this podcast is going to be a journey of me. <laughs> I will have to reread that. We'll have to maybe process some of my thoughts on that. But I love what you're doing with Susan and and calling us to put our attention onto her and onto some of these problems. Now, can we go back a little bit to what you said about him not being as evangelical yes. as evangelicals think is? Can you explain that a little bit? Okay, I'm going to get in trouble, though. <laughs> yes. 
Um, so first of all, there is quite a bit in C.S. Lewis's work that points towards either inclusivism or universalism, this idea of reconciliation that, um, you know, essentially that Jesus is the only way to God, but Jesus will go any road to get to you, essentially. Like we see that in the last battle with the character of Emmett, who is a Callerman and uh, I don't want to say aside from the Orientalist aspects of him, he is an interesting character in that he worshipped Tash all his life, and yet he still ended up in heaven with Aslan. And we see that a lot because George MacDonald was one of C.S. Lewis's favorite authors, one of his spiritual mentors, and George MacDonald was a universalist. And so... It, it, you can't necessarily, you can't have him be as evangelical as he is often portrayed to be. Actually, one of my biggest pet peeves is how he and his wife's relationship are portrayed in evangelical circles. Because, I mean, the truth about Joy Davidman is she left her husband and took her two kids across the ocean purely to seduce C.S. Lewis. And that does not fit in the, yeah. That does not fit in the night in the neat little narrative they've created. Nope, she knew what she wanted. She wanted she wanted C.S. Lewis, and off she went, and she got him. So, oh my gosh, I don't know any of this, <laughs> even though I know I've read A Grief Observed and I watched the film, but um, the, you're probably saying that was sanitized out of the film. Yes, she was a fascinating <laughs> character. She wrote like she wrote erotic sonnets about C.S. Lewis. Like, oh my god. Yes, I'm sorry. This is incredible. One of my favorite, one of my favorite poems by her is C.S. Lewis made like an offhand comment about how he liked blondes and she was a brunette. And she wrote a poem basically saying, you won't notice the color of my hair when I get you into bed. Oh my gosh. She was a fascinating, amazing character. And people kind of use her as like this evangelical sort of martyr thing to test Lewis's faith. That's some of the things that bother me about Shadowlands and some of the portrayals that we see of their relationship. When actually it was really dynamic. It was very sexy. It was very, uh, she was the pursuer. She pursued him. Like that's another thing that about evangelicalism is Lewis can talk all he wants about headship and marriage and, you know, husband and wife and children. You can see that in some of his early theology, but the truth of the matter is Joy Davidman ran that household and what she said goes. Yeah. And he definitely considered her his intellectual peer. And I think you're exactly right. Now, again, I don't remember this, but when I was like 18 or 19, I was really into mere Christianity. It was just like everybody was and gave it to some of my friends, you know, to try and convert them or whatever. Uh, because C.S. Lewis had such a better way of talking than, like, the other Christian writers I knew. Um, but I don't remember the, him talking about male and female relationships, but obviously it's in there. And so that's yep. what you're referring to, right, is he talks yes. about hierarchy, gender hierarchy, men being the head of the household. Now, I probably didn't notice it because that was just the air I breathed when I was 18. Mm-hmm. Um, now I definitely would notice it how how do you how can you help people like me sort of reconcile with that you're saying you're just taking a wider look at his life and his life didn't neatly match up to what he proclaimed yeah I'd say that Lewis had a thing where he would talk the talk and then not walk the walk 
And he wrote Mere Christianity before he had met Joy, before he had had really close relationships with any women and um, had literally no experience with marriage. So the fact that he writes a chapter on marriage in Mere Christianity is a little absurd because uh, I, I am a single woman. I wouldn't write a book on marriage. <laughs> it's just not my wheelhouse. But Lewis had a tendency of writing things that were not in his wheelhouse and pretending he was an expert at stuff that he was most certainly not an expert in. And rushing a little bit right into um, thinking through his theologies and ideas about God, like in books, isn't that like one of the main things that Tolkien didn't like about Narnia is he's like, Lewis is playing with these huge theological concepts in this fiction that he hasn't totally thought out. Is that true? Yeah, kind of. And Tolkien also didn't like, Tolkien had a very like fascinating, strict mythology in his books. Like he, everything was so well thought out. He created different languages, different like whole things. And it was very set on it. Whereas Lewis was just kind of like, Father Christmas is going to be in this book. And then I'm going to have Bacchus from Greek mythology in this book. And then I'm going to have some satyrs and then a dragon. And Tolkien was, Tolkien didn't like the eclectic mishmash of stuff in Lewis's fantasy worlds. That was his main complaint, huh? Yeah, he was, he was a stickler about that. He was just like, stop, stop mixing these mythologies. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I mean... What would you say to people who like, um, you know, I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old and thinking about reading these books with kids. Is there anything you would say to people to approach these books, you know, in 2020? Uh, the world has changed since C.S. Lewis wrote these books. Elements of it remain wonderful, magical, enchanting. What do we do with the other parts? <sighs> well, um, I think conversations are the best thing to have. I don't have kids, so I don't want to necessarily, again, speak outside of my wheelhouse. But if if your kid is bothered by Susan's exclusion from The Last Battle, my encouragement would be Lewis's encouragement. Well, why don't you write your own story about her? Like, tell me what happened to her. Did she go to a new fantastic world that you could create? Did she learn anything did she what what happened to her um i think uh this is not something i can really speak on too much but the racism stuff is worthy of conversation like there's lots of things about the callerman's smelling of garlic mm. that probably need you know careful careful conversations of being like, Hey, he didn't write these characters in a very nice way. Why do you think that what would be a nicer way to write about characters like this? Yeah. So the racism definitely needs some explicit conversations and probably the, the feminism parts um, a little less so, but still definitely worthy of bringing up those conversations. I want to say just even looking at your own story, you, um, you followed C.S. Lewis's advice, didn't you? You wrote a whole play about Susan and you, <laughs> you did this work. And I think I think that's really cool because now so many more of us can start to think about her story, think about her role because you decided to study her and you didn't give up the books and you didn't give up um, your love for them, but you also just didn't let it rest at where C.S. Lewis left it. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's so yeah. cool and encouraging. Yeah. So much. Now, yeah, I think 
that interaction is the best way to to interact with problematic works and turn over those rocks. So, so do you just confuse people all the time because you're a feminist who still likes C.S. Lewis? So many times. Yeah. So many times. Actually, a conservative scholar friend of mine suggested that I write a book called The Liberal Guide to C.S. Lewis. And he's like, I don't mean that offensively. I mean that like seriously. And I was like, actually, that's kind of funny. And I kind of want to do that. (laughs) I think, I think we need more stories like your story, which is you, you give careful attention, um, to where you see problems and you, you engage with them. I think that's what I would like to move forward. Again, I don't blame anybody for saying, you know what? I don't have the energy. No, I mean, I think, I think one of the biggest things is, um, cause I went from being very, very evangelical to kind of leaving Christianity altogether in college. And it's sort of coming back and then dipping a toe in evangelicalism and then being like, no, 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 thank you. And I think one of the biggest things I was afraid of was leaving C.S. Lewis behind because mm. he has such, he's such a powerhouse in evangelical culture. And I really didn't want to do this. And, but the more I studied it and the more I talked with other people, I found out that there is a space for people who are ex-evangelical, who are, who grew up kind of in a fundamentalist background, but still appreciate Lewis and still want to talk to him. I've got like a Twitter book club that I haven't updated in a while, but I need to called the C.S. Lewis book club. And it's always so fascinating and so fun for people of different gender ideas and gender identities and different sexualities, giving me their take on different characters and, you know, how it means them. Like Eustace's transformation from dragon to human, from human to dragon. Um, Somebody I know who is gender fluid had a really, really fascinating and beautiful interpretation of what that meant to them as a gender fluid person. Mm. And so there's constantly, there's so much there if we're willing to look. I love that. And I think right now, even culturally, we're at this moment where a lot of people are saying like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired of being nitpicked. Can't I just have something I hold sacred? And, you know, I see this floating around a lot, this idea that accountability feels like oppression if you're not used to it. And accountability is one thing, but Another way of looking at that is just what you said, like having very different eyes on the text and listening to how it translates to them. Like that is so cool. I I think that's another way we can go forward with C.S. Lewis is let's listen to scholars that come from really different places and how they approach C.S. Lewis's work. Let's listen to readers who come from really different places and how his work impacts them. And I think that's a great way to move forward is we got to, we got to listen to it all, the good, the bad, um, and the in-between. So thank you so much for sharing your scholarship with us. Um, of course people can find you on Twitter. Um, you want to share your Twitter handle right now? It's Kat in Oxford. Okay. And then what, where else can we find you on the internet? Um, I'm also on Instagram and I have a blog called Phoenix in Oxford Okay, and we'll be on the lookout for a book or two. Yes, yes. yeah. I have a lot of I got a lot of things in the air right now. Yeah, yeah. I have a fantasy novel also that is completely unrelated to C.S. Lewis that is currently being shopped by publishers. Also, well, still he'd be he'd be proud of you for writing fantasy, wouldn't he? Yeah, I I hope so. I don't know if he necessarily liked this fantasy novel, (laughs) but maybe he would. (laughs) 
I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Okay, well, thank thank you so much for talking with us, Kat. Maybe we'll have to have you on again for a QA and a because I think there's going to be some uh, questions raised from this. I would love to anytime. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine, and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.